Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 402 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find wonderful writing courses and a great writing community who are very supportive. This is a little bit of a different episode this week. Now, you will know that we are pretty consistent with our delivery of this podcast to you, but sometimes internet and uh, life and various other things can get in the way. So we are not doing our regular episode right now, um, but we're bringing you a story session instead. However, our author will be having a little bit of a chat with you before she reads from her first chapter, and we will still bring you our competition, our fantastic giveaway, and of course, my favourite, the word of the week. So let's get stuck into this week's episode. Are you ready for our competition this week? We have three copies of Flash Jim by Kel Richards to give away. The Astonishing Story of James Hardy Vaughan, Writer of Australia's First Dictionary and First True Crime Memoir. If you wear togs or tell a yarn, call someone sly or refuse to snitch on a friend, then you're talking like a convict. These words and hundreds of others once left colonial magistrates baffled and police confused. The flash language of criminals and convicts had Marine Officer Watkin Tench complaining about the need for an interpreter in the colonial court. Luckily, by 1811, that man was at hand, James Hardy Vaughan. Conman, pickpocket, absconder and thief was so drawn to a life of crime that he was transported to Australia, not once, but three times. His talents, glibness and audacity were extraordinary and during his second sentence, he set about writing a dictionary of the criminal slang of the colony, which was taken back to England to be published. Kel Richards is a veteran Australian author, journalist and broadcaster. Here he tells James's story brilliantly with the help of James's own extraordinarily candid memoir of misdeeds, one of the first true crime memoirs ever published. So if you want your chance to win one of three copies of Flash Jim by Kel Richards, go to writercentercomau slash win. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 17th of May. So just follow the instructions at that URL and good luck. Now, if Al was here, I would be saying to her, are you ready for the word of the week? But she's not. So I'm going to say to you, listeners, are you ready for the word of the week? I hope you're answering with much enthusiasm because the word of the week this week is Erupt. That's E-R-U-C-T. Erupt. It sounds like it's related to erupt. And in fact, its meaning is similar. So a volcano usually erupts, as in E-R-U-C-T-S, before it erupts, as in E-R-U-P-T-S. To erupt is to belch or burp or to emit fumes violently, whereas erupt is to eject matter. So you could say that the baby erupted before it erupted. (laughs) All right. So that was the word of the week.
In this story session, you'll hear the first chapter of a book that we recommend, usually read by the author themselves. And that's what we've got for you today. Listening to the first chapter is such a great opportunity for you to sample the book. You know, it's like try before you buy, right? And then you can check it out at the bookstore if you want to grab a copy. This week I've chosen You Need to Know by Nicola Moriarty. This is the latest novel from the best-selling author of The X and Those Other Women. And once again, Nicola has created an intriguing drama that will hook you right from the start and grip you right to the end. I can't give anything away. This is a book you have to read. So here's the blurb so you can get a little bit of an idea of what the book is about. Jill, her three sons, their wives and children are driving in convoy on Christmas Eve, but something sinister is simmering behind their happy smiles. Mimi is struggling with her new twins, but at least a glass of wine smooths out life's jagged edges. Andrea is starting to wonder if her marriage is as happy as she thought. Darren is reeling from a surprise request and teenager Callie has become increasingly withdrawn. On the way to their holiday house, a terrifying car accident devastates them all, but someone unexpected was in one of the cars. No one is searching for them and their time is running out. You Need to Know is a dark domestic drama about family secrets and lies, fractured relationships, tragic mistakes and the ultimate betrayal. For this story session, Nicola herself will be reading the prologue and first chapter. And before she starts, she takes us behind the scenes of her writing process, including how a picture book helped to inspire this gripping tale. So here is Nicola Moriarty reading from her latest novel, You Need to Know. Hi, I'm Nicola Moriarty and I'm the author of You Need to Know. Valerie asked me to record the answers to some questions before I narrate the first chapter. Uh, so here goes. First question is, what inspired me to write this story? Uh, because You Need to Know is about a car accident, uh, that's the main climax of the book, uh, I guess the the main inspiration, and I, I couldn't tell you exactly where this came from, but I had this idea of what it would be like if a person was to uh, come across a terrible car accident and as they stop to help, have them suddenly realize, I recognize that car. I know the person in that car and look around and go, I know that car, I know that car and slowly realize uh, that they have come across an accident involving their entire family. Uh, which sounds like a, a dark thing to be inspired by, but that is basically uh, the main inspiration for this book. Uh, that and as well the book Who Saked the Boat by Pamela Allen, the children's book which I used to read to my kids, um, the line Who Saked the Boat kept coming into my mind when I started thinking about this idea and I was trying to decide who caused the accident, which is one of the big questions of this book. So I kept uh, finding myself thinking, who sank the boat? Who caused the accident? So that's basically my inspiration. Uh, the next question is, can I describe my writing process? Uh, that is um, not an easy question for me, actually, because my writing process is a little bit all over the place. I'm not a very disciplined author. I don't write to a strict schedule. I don't do the really good um, 
sit down at 9am and work till 5pm, although often I wish that I did. Um, but uh, I work when I can when I feel inspired and I don't do a lot of planning either. I like to uh, just start writing and I'll usually just have the the main premise but I won't really know where it's going to go, how it's going to work out, how it's going to end but I prefer to just start writing and see what comes out, um, what comes at me as I go. Uh, what was the most challenging aspect of writing this book? Probably some of the research of this book. Um, I can't go into details because it gives away uh, something towards the end of the book, so it would be uh, giving away some spoilers, but there is some very dark subject matter and diving into the research for that subject matter was definitely quite challenging and um, reaching into the murky depths of the internet was very confronting. Uh, what was the most rewarding aspect of writing this book? I would have to say, well, it, it always feels rewarding when you get to the end, when you figure out how it's all um how it all comes together um, and, you know, those moments along the way where you solve something, uh, a, a problem with the plot that you've been thinking, I know I can make this work and you're trying and trying and the answer suddenly comes to you is definitely very rewarding. And, uh, yes, having having the finished story at the end, I guess, of every book that I've written is uh, reward enough in itself. Uh, but then you just have to wait and see if everybody else likes it. Uh, and the last question is, what are my top three tips to aspiring writers? Uh, tip number one, and I'm sure everybody knows this, but to read, read, read. Um, read as much as you can. Lots of different writers, lots of different genres. Um, the more you read, uh, the more you enhance your own writing. Tip number two, again, probably a bit obvious, but uh, just keep writing. And uh, I like to think as well that it's good to write different genres. Uh, I found that I was doing a university degree originally with a major in English. My plan was to be a high school teacher, but when my first book was published, I switched out to a writing major and I found that the uh, best thing about that was that I got to explore different types of writing, both fiction and nonfiction. And then within fiction, I wrote in all sorts of different genres like fantasy or romance or, you know, all sorts of things that I wouldn't normally write. And I just felt like that definitely helped. Uh, and tip number three is probably... Oh, oh, there's too many to choose from. Um, uh, probably get out there and, you know, uh, explore other things and uh, you'll find that there are so many things out in the world that can inspire your writing. Maybe, you know, carry a notebook with you so that if 
little things pop out, even if it's little anecdotes that you think, oh, that would be great in a story. Jot it down because it's so hard to remember. Sometimes you think to yourself, that's a great little, little um, snippet. And then uh, next thing it's gone. So uh, yes, um, you know, take a notebook around with you, note down little things. You never know where inspiration for a story might come from. Okay, and now I am going to narrate the first chapter of my book. Um, Actually, I'll do the prologue and the first chapter of You Need to Know. Excuse the sounds of my pages turning. Okay, so I open with a quote from Pamela Allen. Do you know who sank the boat? Was it the little mouse, the last to get in, who was lightest of all? Could it be him? Pamela Allen. If Mimi had been asked if she, was cap- if she was capable of taking a life, she would have said no, never. Prologue. Christmas Eve. Mimi. She had learned from a young age that it's never like it is in the movies. For one thing, there's no soundtrack. In a film, if something dramatic happens or something horrific or frightening or desperately sad, The music will tell you how to feel. It will swell or thrum or thump. Violins might pierce your soul. A bass drum might crash around inside your ribcage. But the thing is, it changes the whole feel of it. You start to imagine that a terrible accident could be an exciting event, a chance to step in and save the day. Whereas the truth of this type of situation is vastly different. When she was small, maybe seven years old, Mimi was at a restaurant with her family when a teenage girl at another table started choking. Most people will have seen somebody choking on television or in a movie, but they might never have seen it in real life. On the screen, it's often comical. The person might be gesturing wildly, eyes bulging. Somebody else doesn't get what's going on. A hero swoops in and expertly performs the Heimlich manoeuvre. A piece of chicken flies across the room. People applaud. In real life, it doesn't work that way. The first thing Mimi noticed was the silence. She remembered she was blowing bubbles in her lemonade. The restaurant was noisy, chaotic. There might have been a shriek or the clatter of a fork being dropped onto a plate, but she dismissed these as a normal part of the chaos. Then the hush fell, and from the silence, two or three panicked voices. All around her, people seemed to have frozen in place. Her eyes were drawn to the table in the centre, a mother and father standing either side of their daughter, the daughter's gaping mouth, someone else, an older brother perhaps, leaping to his feet and his chair crashing to the floor. The noise of it landing made Mimi jump in her seat. And then the wailing started. Everyone responds to crisis situations in different ways. There are the capable types who calmly assess the situation, step in and help. The people who throw their hands up and back away and the people who fall apart. The mother was falling apart. She didn't know how to help her daughter. Her daughter who couldn't breathe and was turning redder by the second. And maybe without even realising it, she'd begun to scream. That scream was the most sickening noise Mimi had ever heard in her entire, albeit short, life. She couldn't say what what it was about it. Was it the anguish she could hear within it? The fear? The rawness, it was strangled and it was animalistic and it was frightening and she wanted it to stop. 
In the meantime, other diners had converged on the table. Mimi couldn't see the teenager's face anymore. Someone had hoisted her out of her chair and now they were attempting to do the Heimlich manoeuvre, but from the frustrated shouts, it didn't seem to be working. That's when Mimi's mum took her by the hand and led her out of the restaurant. Maybe she saw the look on her face. Or maybe she was afraid that they weren't going to be able to save the girl, that she might die right here in the middle of the restaurant, and she didn't want Mimi to witness that. They wandered up and down the footpath outside, and her mother chatted to her about different things. She couldn't remember now what they spoke about, but she could recall that sense of knowing. She's trying to distract me. Soon there was the wail of a siren. Mimi never found out whether that girl was okay, but she did think about it a lot. She replayed the scene in her mind as she fell asleep at night. She heard the sound of the mother's cries, and her skin would crawl and her stomach would churn. Sometimes tears would sting her eyes, and she didn't really understand why. Thirty years had gone by since that night at the restaurant, and tonight Mimi had found herself thinking of that mother again. It was Christmas Eve, so she shouldn't be thinking about her. She should be thinking about happy things, warm, feel-good things. Must remember to hang the stockings tonight when we arrive at the holiday house. Was the turkey I bought too big for that oven up there? I should have double-checked with Jill. Did Pete's brother Darren remember to pick up the prawns this morning? And was he smart enough to pack them in an esky with ice for the drive up? Did we buy enough gifts for the twins? They're only babies. I know they won't remember their first Christmas morning. And there's very little that they need, what with all the hand-me-downs from Callie and Tara, but still, I don't want them to miss out. This is what I should be thinking of. Mimi loved the lead-up to Christmas. She always had, the way the world felt different. Not just festive, that was a given. But magical. She still got a funny little jump in the pit of her stomach when a shopping centre Santa waved at her. So why was she thinking about that woman right now instead of about eggnog and candy canes? It was because of the accident on the freeway. It was just like when that girl was choking in the restaurant. There was an eerie silence. Then the sound of someone grunting in pain. And finally something else. A woman's tortured screams. She sounded just like the mother in the restaurant. And Mimi was thinking, no, not this again. No, no, no. But then she realized, the person who's screaming is me. Chapter 1, Tuesday, 1st December. Mimi. Mimi lay on her stomach on the rug, her sketchbook and pencils in front of her. A bead of sweat slipped down from her forehead and curved around her cheek. She should hop up and turn on the aircon. Summer had well and truly arrived. The twins were side, on, side by side on their backs, both gazing up at the colourful mobiles hanging from their play gym. She should have been giving them some tummy time, but they hated being on their stomachs at the moment, and she rather preferred happy gurgling twins over anguished screaming ones. Not to mention the fact that Elliot had recently mastered the art of rolling front to back. Now, as soon as Mimi put her on her stomach, she immediately flipped back over anyway. So what was the point? If anything, it would only mean Elliot showing off in front of James. What if that created some sort of rift between the sisters? What if years in the future, James was sitting in a therapist's office explaining how her inferiority complex first stemmed from the days when her mother placed her next to her capable rolling twin while she stayed stuck on her stomach and screamed. Actually, they were probably both going to end up in therapist's office, complaining that their parents had wanted boys, not girls, as evidenced by their two very boyish names. Which wouldn't be fair, really. 
Mimi was perfectly happy with having girls. It was Pete who'd been hoping for boys. He might have tried to hide it, but it was bloody obvious. Whereas Mimi, well, Mimi hadn't wanted any more children at all. She put down the pencil she'd been drawing with and gave her hand a small smack. You're not supposed to have thoughts like that, not consciously. Yes, it was true that Pete had been the one pushing for another child, but it wasn't his fault they'd ended up with two for the price of one. That was life. I'd like to play funny tricks on you. Sometimes they were small pranks, like when she stayed up until one in the morning finishing her daughter's school project. She knew she wasn't supposed to do the work for her, but she also knew that every other parent was probably up late creating the paper mache sculptures of the earth too. She knew because she and the other mums joked about it at school pickup. How did you go with your homework this week? Ha ha, wink, wink. But anyway, the next day, when she woke up, bleary-eyed, her daughter woke with a bad cough and couldn't go to school, and Mimi realised she could have been she could have watched Netflix and drunk wine and gone to bed at 11. But other times, it was an extra funny trick, a real zinger. Twins, when your husband convinced you to have just one more baby, that with three children, your family will be complete that it'll be so much easier this time because Callie is 16 and Tara is 8 and they're self-sufficient and they're great kids and they'll help out with the baby. The problem was, Mimi had felt their family was complete. She'd had such an unexpected path to motherhood. As young newlyweds, they'd been completely blindsided by the discovery that Mimi had fallen pregnant with Callie at 22. The pregnancy was smooth, the delivery was unexceptional, and then Callie had been a dream baby. She fed well, she slept well, so before long, they figured they may as well have another. It hadn't been their plan to have children in their early 20s, but why not? Apparently, the reason why not was Mimi's uterus, which decided it wasn't going to be so compliant the second time around. And so they'd gone through years of heartache trying to fall pregnant. That's why there was such a huge age gap age gap between their two eldest girls. When Tara had come along, Mimi had felt such a sense of relief, of contentment, as though for years she'd been trying and failing and trying and failing to do this one simple task, bring Tara into the world. And now that she'd done it, she could relax, she could breathe again. She'd thought she and Pete were on the same page about that, but then she'd understood. He was aching for a son, A bit of an annoying cliche, really. What could a son do for him that their daughters couldn't? It didn't help that he'd grown up with two brothers and was missing being surrounded by all that bloody testosterone. So despite knowing she was done, Mimi had given in and they'd started to try again. And for whatever reason, her uterus had decided it was back to being amenable and she'd fallen pregnant with the same speed and ease as she had back in her early 20s. Thanks a lot, uterus. She licked her upper lip and tasted salt, sweat. Their house was meant to be ecologically designed for environmentally friendly heating and cooling, but she'd never found it to be as effective as flicking the switch on the aircon. She wished they'd put in a swimming pool last summer when they'd suffered through the heat and begun to discuss the idea. Then everything had changed, the twin pregnancy, and of course, entangled with the news of new life was the news of loss. In the end, a swimming pool was the last thing on their minds. Besides, Pete had pointed out they'd forever be scooping leaves from the water because of the bush behind their house. So in a minute, she'd give in and resort to technology to cool herself down. If she was honest, today had been a pretty good day. 
although she did have a new bar for what was considered a good day now that she had twins. But Callie and Tara had both got ready for school and out the door on time for once this morning without any arguments, and Callie had even changed one nappy for her. That was a particularly big deal. Because soon after after the twins were born, Callie had made a family declaration that she was never changing any nappies. In stark contrast, Tara's response had been to morph into a very capable, if a little short, live-in nanny. The funny thing was, when Mimi was pregnant, she'd assumed Callie was going to be the one helping out and that maybe Tara might act out a bit because she'd been replaced as the baby of the family. But instead, Callie had been more and more withdrawn lately, spending increasing amounts of time locked away in her bedroom, while Tara seemed to have matured five years in the space of a month. Of course, it was to be expected that Callie would go through a teenage stage like this, but it was still a shock because right up until this year, Mimi had thought Callie had somehow skipped the scary teen stage. They'd remained close right through the start of high school and through Callie getting her first period and pimples and awkward growth spurts. Callie had kept confiding in her and joking with her. But now, along with retreating to her room all the time, she'd become snappy and irritable. It was as if she was a different person. Meanwhile, Tara was so helpful that Mimi needed to be careful she didn't start to lean on her too much. She was eight, for goodness sake. She still needed to be a kid and have fun and not take on the burden of motherhood. She needed to enjoy being the big sister. Her responsibilities shouldn't extend beyond keeping her room tidy, doing her homework, helping out with some family chores. On more than one occasion, Mimi had been slow to rouse herself and climb out of bed in the night when the twins had woken for a feed, only to find Tara already in their room, scooping one out of the cot to comfort her, an expert arm reaching in to give the other a tender pat while she waited for her mother. And the temptation was there for Mimi to accept her help, to allow Tara to hold James while she picked up Elliot and started warming the bottles. But she stopped herself and sent Tara back to bed. The only one helping her should be Pete. Tara was a child. She needed her sleep. Thankfully, on her way back to bed, Tara always snuck into her parents' bedroom and nudged her dad awake so he'd know Mimi needed the help. Mimi picked her pencil back up and had another go at the sketch she'd been working on, but she wasn't feeling inspired. She was meant to be creating a cute little monkey for a jungle scene and the little bugger wouldn't sit right in the trees for her. She checked the time. Was it too early for a glass of wine? Often just one glass helped her to relax and get her creativity flowing. It wasn't even midday. Maybe she could have one later with lunch. That was the upside of bottle feeding. She was allowed alcohol again. She'd struggled to breastfeed the twins from the beginning. Both Callie and Tara had been good feeders. They'd latched on in the exact way all the breastfeeding literature described. She could remember looking at other mothers in the hospital having trouble feeding and couldn't understand why it was so hard for them. She was ashamed to admit that a small part of her thought she was somehow superior because her babies could feed. Now she wanted to go back in time and hit herself over the head with a breast pump. She wanted to reach back and comfort those mothers, shield their eyes from her smug face as she sat and nursed her daughters. Because now she got it. She bloody well got it. Breastfeeding was not the easiest, most natural thing in the world. It was fucking hard. And her success the first two times had nothing to do with some innate ability she possessed as a mother. It was dumb luck. And so the twins had been supplemented with more and more formula from the day she came home from from hospital until eventually her abysmal supply of milk dried up. She hadn't cried about it. 
and she hadn't felt like a failure, failure, she'd celebrated because fuck she'd miss wine. She felt her phone buzzing in the back pocket of her jeans and slipped it out. It was Jill, her mother-in-law. As Mimi slid her thumb across the screen to answer, Elliot opened her mouth and let out a huge wail as though she'd been waiting for the right moment. Jill. Dear Frank, three Hail Marys this morning, sitting up here in bed. That's all I could manage for my sins. I suspect if I went to a priest, he wouldn't think that was enough, and I'm supposed to get down on my knees to do it. But I was tired and cranky. So three was the magic number today. Besides, I know what you would say. Why are you bothering with that woman? God isn't sitting around waiting to count your prayers. He's got better things to do. But I don't know how else I'm supposed to atone. Love, Jill. Jill folded up the piece of paper and placed it on her bedside table. Later, she'd put it in an envelope, seal it up, address, stamp, and post it. A waste of time, but she'd still do it. When she first started, the letters were longer. In them, she would beg for for forgiveness. She would tell detailed stories about her days, about the boys. Sometimes, as she wrote, spots of ink would be smudged with her tears. But that hadn't happened for some time now. She, she smoothed her hands across the floral bedspread on her lap and briefly considered pulling it right back up, easing herself down flat again, closing her eyes and praying for sleep. But she knew it wouldn't come. Sleep never seemed to come when she wanted it anymore. She always used to start the day with a cup of tea in bed. Frank would bring it to her, place it on the bedside table right where the letter was sitting. Now if she wanted to start the day with a cup of tea, she had to get out of bed and make it herself. Most days, she hated him for leaving her. She hated that with Frank gone, it sometimes felt as though she'd lost all of her best parts along with him. Her sense of humour, patience, her compassion. Actually, that wasn't entirely true. They weren't gone, not completely. They were muted. She glanced sideways at the folded paper, considered picking it back up and rewriting it. She'd been far too brusque, far too dismissive. But then what else could she say? She had no news to share, no cute little stories. Besides, she knew full well why she was cranky today. It was because of the date, the 1st of December. Christmas was coming, and there was no way she could stop it. Her friend Marjorie had suggested she do something different this year for the holidays, but Marjorie didn't know why it was so important that Jill stuck with tradition. She twitched back the covers and placed her feet on the floor. Her whole body seemed to creak and groan. She hated this part of the day, when her bones hadn't woken yet and they protested against every move. She collected her thick blue dressing gown from the armchair in the corner and pulled it on. It might have been the beginning of summer, but she still needed to wear it first thing. This house was always cold in the mornings, and her bones wouldn't loosen until she warmed up. She slid her feet into her slippers and headed out to the kitchen to put the kettle on. While the kettle boiled, she leaned against the bench and wondered what she might do today. It was already 11am, so she'd used up a good portion of the day just lazing in bed, writing to Frank and feeling sorry for herself because there was no one to bring her a cup of tea. Marjorie kept trying to convince her to come and volunteer at the Salvation Army charity store with her. She said it would be a good way for her to get out of the house, but Jill had no interest at all in joining Marjorie at the Salvos. Marjorie had told her stories of what the other women were like, 
the ones who'd been there the longest and had unofficially appointed themselves as management. He sniped at Marjorie if she discounted a second-hand pair of shoes or tutted if she rearranged the racks in a different way to what they thought was best. Marjorie laughed with Jill about their self-importance, but Jill knew she wouldn't be able to stand being bossed around by a bunch of officious women when she used to run an entire staff of teachers and had control and had control of over 800 students at Wattlecrest High before she'd retired. Sometimes she thought she'd retired too early. Sometimes she felt she could walk into Wattlecrest and step right back into the principal's shoes today. Other days, she knew everything had changed in the schooling system since she'd left and that her ways wouldn't cut it anymore. She could call her daughter-in-law, check if she needed any help with the babies. But she didn't want to seem overbearing. Pete's wife had been the first to marry into their family. Mimi, an absolute goddess with her long black curls, tall and striking way out of her son's league, weak and strong all at once. Despite the physical imbalance, they were the perfect match, better suited even than she and Frank had been all those years. There was just something about them. They were equals, best friends. You could tell there were no secrets in that marriage. And Mimi always made sure Pete took on his fair share of the housework and the parenting, not like when she was raising three boys with Frank. Yes, it was the new way, but it was also Mimi, strong and firm. Yet somehow Mimi had let Pete railroad her into another pregnancy, a weakness. It was clear she didn't want to have any more children, especially after all the trouble that had fallen pregnant with Tara. And Jill knew the age difference made it difficult at times for the sisters to bond. The gap particularly widened when Callie hit her teen years and had been stretching ever since. After all, what did a 16-year-old have in common with an 8-year-old? But at the same time, they were still sisters and they did love one another. Jill could see it in the way Callie was protective of her younger sister and in the way Tara looked up to her, even as she pretended she didn't. The big shock had been finding out that the third pregnancy was twins. Now you've gone and done it, Jill had thought when she heard the news. This might be the end of you both, the end of your marriage. But it wasn't, at least not yet. So far, Mimi was coping, just. But she didn't even have her parents here to help her out. Another example of Mimi's bravery, immigrating from England to Australia all alone when she was only 18. Maybe Jill should call her, at least to check in. She was closer to Mimi than she was to her other daughter-in-law, but that made sense. Mimi had been a part of their family for so long, whereas Tony met Andrea much later, married less than two years ago, and Andrea was harder to read, which was surprising considering she was a high school teacher. Jill ought to have more in common with her. But they simply hadn't bonded yet. In terms of looks, Andrea was Mimi's polar opposite in every way. Where Andrea was short and slim with petite features, Mimi was all hips and breasts and she towered over pretty much everyone in their family. While Mimi had those long, dark curls, Andrea kept her light brown hair closely cropped in a pixie cut. The other thing that brought Jill closer to Mimi was the grandchildren. Apparently, Tony and Andrea didn't want to have children, ever. But who was the driving force behind that decision? There had almost been a third daughter-in-law. They'd all thought Darren was going to marry his long-term girlfriend, Charlotte, but last year they'd discovered they were all quite wrong, and Darren had been alone ever since. Sometimes Jill worried that he was running out of time if he wanted to have a family, but then she'd remember. Men had all the time in the world, didn't they? It was women who had a ticking time bomb in their uterus. Unfair. 
The kettle boiled, and she poured her cup of tea, then picked up her phone to call Mimi. For a moment, her thumb hovered over the mail icon. The email had arrived three days ago. It had taken her a few minutes, but eventually she had recognized the sender's name. It was a name that gave her a nasty feeling in the pit of her stomach, and it was highly unusual that she would be writing to her. Then she'd read the subject line, You need to know. Her skin had prickled with irritation. What on earth could this woman have to say that Jill apparently needed to know? The presumptuous tone annoyed her, so she'd closed the app and ignored it. Her thumb moved away from her inbox now, and instead, she phoned Mimi. Wow. Okay, so that is the latest exciting family drama from Nicola Moriarty, and I'm sure it's going to be another bestseller. I love how in her tips, Nicola says not just to read widely, which is of course important, but also to write widely. Writers often think that they have to write in one genre only, or they worry about what they should write instead of what they want to write. So my challenge to you is try to write something completely different. Just a few paragraphs of something you've never tried before. So if you usually write crime, try starting writing fantasy or sci-fi. Or if you've never written romance, give it a go. You might surprise yourself. We interviewed Nicola back in episode 304. So make sure you check that out if you want to hear more from Nicola. Also, if you feel like you've got a whole novel in you just dying to come out, check out our program, Write Your Novel, at the Australian Writers' Centre. That's what Petronella McGovern did, and she's on, gone on to publish several books. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're serious about completing your own novel manuscript, immerse yourself in our inspiring and motivational six-month program, Write Your Novel. Filled with weekly workshopping and practical lessons, you'll receive advice on structure, dialogue and much more, as well as tips on publishing. The online program fits around your weekly schedule and you'll get extensive personal feedback from your classmates and tutor throughout the program. Have a listen to Petronella McGovern. My name's Petronella McGovern. I've done four courses at the Australian Writers' Centre. I'm excited to say I'm a published author of a book called Six Minutes, which is a psychological thriller set in Canberra. Before I started the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I was working from home as a writer in marketing communications. When you've got the kids and work and everyday life, then writing often gets pushed to the background. I wanted to do a course that helped me prioritise my writing and put it first. I signed up to the Write Your Novel six-month program to kickstart my novel. I had written a few chapters, but I really was not finding the time with work and kids. So the six-month Write Your Novel was, as it implies, six months, and a weekly class. We had deadlines for chapters. We had deadlines to workshop and give feedback. And it really helped give you the support to write a really long piece of work. So when you sit down to look at writing a novel of 100,000 words, it's a large task. And the classes really supported me all the way through that process. The tutor talked about how to structure a novel. And then we could look at that in terms of our own novel and see how it would go. It was useful for me to think about where certain things should happen in the novel and how to keep the action going and when to set a climax and when to end the novel. The tutors at the Australian Writers' Centre are so helpful and practical. 
They're all practicing authors and they share their experience and their wisdom very generously with their students. Through the Australian Writers' Centre, I've made lifelong friends who are fellow writers and we're supporting each other through our writing journeys. What I really like about the Australian Writers' Centre is that they have a range of courses and so there are great options for whatever stage you're in. If it wasn't for the Australian Writers' Centre, it would have taken me a lot longer to finish my first draft of six minutes and a lot longer, I think, to get it published. I really enjoyed the feedback and the support that I got through the Australian Writers' Centre, through the tutors and the other people in our class. I would say get started on a course as soon as you can. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash novel writing. Thanks for listening to Story Sessions of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writerscentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Do connect with us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at writerscentreau, and, of course, connect with us personally in our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Alice and I will be back to our regular programming in the next episode. Thanks for listening and I look forward to chatting to you again next time.